You're listening to Fight in Progress. With your hosts and stress coaches, founder of Under the Shield, Susan Simmons, and TomTheBomb.com. Fight in Progress grapples with the internal and external struggles in the daily lives of our men and women in law enforcement, the armed forces, and first responders. Tackling the tough topics and supporting those who support us. We hear you, and we're here for you. Well, my name is Dennis Cunningham, and I welcome you to Under the Shield Live. Presents. Oh, I'm sorry. Under the Shield presents. Fight in Progress. Fight in Progress. Uh, my name is, like I said, Dennis Cunningham. I'm a retired police officer with the city of Chandler. I also work for the, I also retired out of the city of Lodi in California. In other words, he's crazy, but anyway. Yeah. Um, so I only did 43 years in law enforcement before I retired uh, completely. <laughs> for um, now. For now, yeah. Um, but um, one of the things I did, one of the great pleasures I had was I was the president of the Chandler Police Officers Association. Uh, I was vice president for a number of years, but I was uh, president for uh, three years. And during that uh, time, I was president of the association. I got to meet Susan. And um, got with uh, Tom. and uh, Your co-host. My co-host. Go ahead, Mr. Lovejoy. <laughs> Well, I'm Tom Lovejoy. I've been on here before. Yes, he has. And I've been a with Chandler Police Department for 32 years. Ugh. Yeah. <laughs> 22 years as a sergeant. <laughs> yeah. I got a little bit of experience. Been the association president for quite a few years. And, uh, and I, you know when you retire, they're just going to hire you. <laughs> I don't think you're going to. I don't uh, think they're going to let you leave as president. Probably not. There's been talk about that. I keep telling them that they need to bring Dennis back. I agree. I think he would be a good uh, addition to that. So um, it, we're here today because we had talked to Susan, or I had talked to Susan. I went through a stress coach class and listening to her talk and, and knowing the things that we've gone through with selling or promoting under the shield to different agencies. I felt like the question that you get asked a lot is this, who is Susan and what is... Um, what is this under the shield all about? So we're always interviewing other people. In fact, the last time I was in this office, I was sitting where you are, Susan. And in the hot seat. In the hot seat. And uh, Chris Farrar was sitting in this seat. So yes, he was. A little bit entertaining. And actually, that's the last time I think I was in your office. Probably. So. Yeah, and that's been a while. It has been. Given he's almost been gone a year and yep. can't believe it, to be honest. Some days it feels like it's been 10 years and some days it feels like it's been two weeks. It does feel like it's been... Uh, it, it's hard because it's uh, yeah, I come in your office and I see his picture on the pillow over here and it's like, he's staring at me of, and I could feel him. He's in because, my house. Yeah, he is. I, I just let you know, he's constantly here doing things. He is. So, and, and I, and we're going to talk a lot about Chris tonight too, because I think that um, Chris is one of the perfect examples for um, why under the shield is so important. And we're, we'll probably get into a lot of that because he's a good reason of why everyone should have under the shield and kind of promoting that. So uh, to go back to the original thing, we talked about having this radio show and I had wanted to do that because I get asked a lot, who is Susan and what right does she have to be telling us what to do and, and things Southern like and that. Because I'm Southern and I'm old so, and I'm a redhead and I want to. Well, that's the end of the show. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you everyone for listening and that wraps it up. 
But um, I don't, it was like 2000, gosh, what was it? I Eight, moved here nine. in 12. You moved here in 12. So, and then it was shortly after that, mm -hmm. you met with Dennis and I. We, uh, I think it was through Rebecca, wasn't it? That Actually, it was Mary and Dave Newman. Yeah. Mary and Dave Newman, Team 905. Team 905 yeah. yeah. And we, we met over at uh, Joe's Barbecue and uh, they had this program they wanted to basically sell to us. And we were really there for lunch, I think, more than... <laughs> That. We get these things all the time where people want to sell something or they want to promote something. So sure, we um, you're good, Dennis. <laughs> all right, we have to hurry. He has to be back to the senior center here. Very quick, so. <laughs> the home's nah, gonna be. Like, he well, escaped for a couple hours. It's lunch, and today they're having mashed potatoes. So no. he's pretty excited about Dude, that. This <laughs> is on my tracking bracelet. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> got too far from your wheelchair or what happened no i got too i'm not i'm not supposed to be out except to go to work <laughs> okay. home detention home de work release whatever anyway so we you know we met with susan at that point and it, once you meet susan i think for the first time you know that she number one knows what she's talking about but that she's passionate and what she's passionate about is um saving lives and saving careers and saving marriages and and that was something that was important i think both to dennis and i because as presidents back then we, we dealt we deal with a lot of personal issues that people are going through and a lot of stuff that when they get in trouble at work is because of maybe a personal issue or things like that where they're not managing their stress well this is a tough job and i think susan out of everyone that i've seen has the best program because it's it's a holistic program that she has and it starts with the very basics of sleep and and just making sure you're getting your vitamins because the job that we have is 24 7 it's stressful we don't get sleep we sleep at odd hours so there's just a lot that goes into that and susan hit all of those points which is going to um lead us into why we wanted to talk to susan and interview her today and just basically give her background a little bit on on why she's here and how this got started so yeah, but here's my question for you guys, because it never even occurred to me until you just said what you did. What were y'all expecting walking into that meeting? You never me? know. Lunch, I think. <laughs> yeah, wasn't it lunch? I mean, I knew Joe's, I was getting a free lunch. Yeah, Charles Barbecue. You can't do that. It, you can't jumbo go wrong. Baker. And yeah, you can't go wrong. Listen to somebody talk. Uh, whatever. <laughs> but you do. I get stuff. Like, I've had lunch with people that wanted to sell an app that they thought was going to, you know, solve all those department <laughs> problems. But you know, it's like, yeah. all right. So I, you know, I never that was Chinese food. That time, so. <laughs> it but. never occurred to me to ask y'all what y'all even knew or thought if if you even had any expectations. But now I know it's just the free food. <laughs> okay, we've cleared that part up. Well, truthfully, it was because you were offering a program or the stuff that you talked about was things that we saw as that there was a need for, mm -hmm. especially in our department and the, the growing that we had and the young police officers and just the, the inexperience, I guess, of, of real life things that they had going on because a lot of times what happens is because we had hired so many people they were very young and i think that they were thrown into a world that was very stressful and and things that they had never seen before mm -hmm. um and you know this is a generation that hasn't been through any wars or hasn't been any you know any major catastrophes or anything like that where they had stresses that they learned how to deal with and they get into policing and all of a sudden they're going to calls of things that they never seen and that's that to, for me even i started out at 23 years old and i can remember going calls thinking this stuff happens this is this. <laughs> not like tv is that what you're no telling? it was crazy <laughs> stuff and there, I, I learned a lot of things that i never thought i would learn and i wished i hadn't but sure. it, you don't know what to do with some of those things because 
you know, you, you build up those things will build up inside of you and it gets to be stress. And that gets into a lot of your program and teaching people how to empty your garbage can, which is your, um, you're the big theme for how, how we do with all of that. So, and that's important. So, and so I don't know the expectation of what it was when we went in there, I wasn't sure, but I knew that when we left, we had to have it. So, well, one thing I was looking for, because one thing I had experienced and watched happen several times, because uh, I was at, in with our association in California also. And I I saw, I hadn't really experienced too much of it yet in Chandler, um, because I'd only been there a couple, three years. But I, like I said, I spent 29 years in California. And what I did experience was that the administration did not take care of their people when bad things happened. Um, but know, do you think that was because they didn't want to or they didn't know how to or just didn't occur to them because then it would make them sound weak? Well, I, I think in uh, a, a lot of departments, they so rarely go through really bad things um, that they didn't know how to handle it. I mean, it's not like something happens every day. It's not like you're a, a huge department like Los Angeles or, or, sure. or, or New York or something like that where... It, you know, like New York has a shooting, what, every 17 hours? Yeah. An officer-involved shooting every now 17 probably less. I mean, it's probably a lot more often. <clears throat> right. But what I'm saying is if you don't have it and it's not occurring all the time, um, you may not deal with it properly. And your people need to get taken care of, and your people have to have somebody that they trust that they can go talk to. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that was going rampant when, you came into the picture was um, guys not being able to trust going to talk to, <clears throat> you know, um, like if you went to a psychologist uh, or a psychiatrist that was uh, with the city and you went to go talk to them and you said, Hey, I mean, I, I'm really having trouble dealing with this. And, you know, I don't know what I'm going to do. And, and you said something just because, you know, you were, you know, venting, venting, they may go back and report you and say, because they're required to, because that's who's paying them. Sure. It's, it's the city and going like, Hey, uh, this guy can't be a cop anymore because I think he can't handle this. Mm -hmm. So, but I think you need to be able to have, and that was a big thing for me. You need to have someone you can go talk to that you trust. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> well, and I have to commend you guys because truly y'all were, Avondale was the first association to hire us, but y'all came right in behind Paul over there, and and it was kind of interesting because we'd always met such resistance because I'm not licensed. And the part that makes me laugh even still today is when people go, well, she's not licensed. There is no license for stress coaching. <laughs> They're asking me to have something that's not even available. And I don't really understand why the licensing is such a big deal anyway. I've actually only had one chief who asked me, What's the big deal about you not being licensed? And I was like, bless you, because <laughs> that's a really good question. It, it is, and it's always the one that comes up, and I think that we they don't understand why that is and why that's important for us, because like Dennis said, the mandatory reporting is such a huge thing and that you get into those problems. And, it, you know, what? there's always such a stigma with police officers because everybody thinks that these are the perfect people. They don't have any problems, and the minute they do have a problem, you shouldn't be a policeman anymore. And that's gotten into more of the mental health side of things to where, you know, a lot of us have thoughts that of, of doing harm to ourselves, or we've had, you know, problems with just 
relationship problems or multitude of different things that we just couldn't talk about because if you did you would wind up doing like dennis said and having to go meet with one of the city psychologists and do a fitness for duty and, and we've seen how that works out and it doesn't and you lose you're losing good policemen and right now we can't afford to do that not at all and that's the thing that we had found is that we need to figure out how that we can fix people get them back to work and in in most cases be a better policeman than they were when they got into that situation but they're also advocates so that other officers as they're going through those things or they they are able to identify things because of what they've been through they see markers of think okay i need to keep an eye on that guy because that's where i was when that happened and right before i you know ran into problems so it's a good thing all the way around because once you get a couple of people that have been through either your program or have been through a, a trying time and maybe had to take a little bit of time off but they got themselves fixed because mm -hmm. uh mental illness mental issues whatever you know however you want to frame that are not things like a broken arm that we can x-ray and that we can see them but they're also things that can be fixed and they can be repaired and there's things that we can do to help people cope better with whatever their problems are because really what this job comes down to in everything that we deal with is coping whether it's mm -hmm. dealing with your administration whether it's your your emotional coping on how you deal with going to calls or just even your stuff that's going on at home coping with that but being able to come to work and be an effective police officer. And the sad part is so much of this could be mitigated in the beginning through training. And you just don't see that aspect of the training changing from when I started even 30 years ago. I, I remember the first stress class I taught from Montgomery Police Department, and now I'm almost embarrassed of the material that I used. But I remember walking in, and the guys all being disappointed that it wasn't sleeping class. I mean, they they really thought, because that's what stress management had been, turn the lights down and visualize your happy place and take a deep breath. And and they were like, what do you mean this isn't sleeping class? And I go, no, this isn't sleeping class. This is something where we're going to teach you something. And that's kind of sad to me that it really hasn't changed much since then. It, it hasn't, and you're right. And that we spend all time, all the you know, however many weeks it is now going through a police academy mm -hmm. and they give you all these tools on your belt for dealing with things that are going to come at you in the public. But what they don't give you are the tools to deal with the things that after at the after the after when you're going to a call that's whether it be a shooting or a homicide or a really horrible domestic violence or one of our sex crimes or something like that, you're not given the tools to deal with that on your own. And those things can cause a lot of problems. For officers if they don't know how to deal with that so you're right we do get a lot of tools to deal with stuff but we do not get tools especially in the academy to deal with the stress that comes with this job it's not uh, easy because it's external yeah. and it's internal i remember teaching the first time at border patrol down in yuma time gets away from me because i'm really getting old i can't believe i've been here 10 years almost 10 years this summer and um <clears throat> i was standing in front of about 100 of them and i said how many of y'all have had a stress management class a few hands went up and I said, what'd you learn? And they just kind of looked at me. They got that deer in the headlights look. Couldn't tell me anything they learned. And I said, uh, how many of y'all went to an academy and were issued a firearm? And now they're looking at each other like, does she know who she's talking to, who this audience is? And I said, humor me. And every hand went up. And I said, how many of y'all were taught how to clean and maintain that firearm? Every hand went up. Ask out in the front row. I said, why did you, why'd they have to teach you that? And he said, because if you don't, it could malfunction or misfire. And I said, that's right. I said, but if you take that gun and sit it on this desk for the next eight hours, what's it going to do? 
And he kind of looked at me crazy. He goes, not a damn thing. And I said, you're right. And I said, what determines if the gun's used properly? He said, the person that picks it up. And uh, I said, so let me get this straight. We spent a lot of time in academies teaching y'all how to clean and maintain your equipment, but we don't teach the person behind the ass, behind the taser, behind the spray, behind the gun, behind the vehicle, how to clean and maintain themselves. And the assistant chief of the sector got up, walked out, and I thought, well, guess I won't be back at Border Patrol again. And he came back at lunch, and he goes, Susan, that was a brilliant analogy. He said, I went back and got you in the budget for the next four years. But I thought, how sad is it that nobody's stopping to realize that the employee, the person, the officer, male, female, whatever, is the most important commodity a police department has, and we spend the least amount of time teaching them how to be healthy, but we're teaching you. Somebody was debating with me the other day about defensive tactics and and teaching officers jujitsu, and I said, that's great. It's a stress reliever. It's a great tool. But if you still haven't dealt with the person, what's happening at home, what's happening on the job, what have they seen, what are they trying to process, all that stuff goes out the window when it hits the fan. And that, to me, is one of the saddest things. We spend more time worrying about equipment than we do the people behind the equipment. And that's got to change. Dennis, did you even have stress management when you were in the academy? No, not at all. I I didn't have – they sent me to a, a, a peer counselor class um when i was in california because they were having so much problems in california with officers being involved in shootings Mm -hmm. and we'd lose all of them guys that didn't fire around uh guys that were just standing in the background and 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 shooting officers because psychologically they couldn't handle it so what they wanted to do was send uh, officers to the peer counselor group so once they got into a shooting Mm-hmm. that we could go talk to them and say, hey, man, this is what you can expect. This is, you know, this is how you get through this. And that's the first time I'd had any, you know. And you know what we have seen over the 30 years? Officers in shootings, it isn't so much they can't handle the shooting. It's that they are having reactions, again, going back to training, that nobody's taught them. They think they're the only one. So then they start processing. They're not cut out to do this job. And it has nothing to do with that. Mm-hmm. And then that's why peer support can be so important when other cops are sitting there saying, oh, I had that exact experience. And then you got five of them saying, oh, heck yeah, that it was normal. Um, and then they're going, oh, okay, so maybe I am cut out to do this job. But if you don't tell them that, they just assume they're not cut out for it. Well, and I think the problems that you have, like Dennis said, and like you said, is that, that at least in what we've seen is that the officers that didn't engage, couldn't engage, you know, couldn't do something, they have more problems or yes. things to deal with than the officers that were actually in the shooting because they know what they did and the reason they did it. The sure. other guys that didn't get a shot off or weren't able to do something, especially if it ends in a horrific thing like another officer's death or yes. something like that, that's a, that's a tough load for them to carry unless they have that. Mm-hmm. And uh, otherwise, you know, because police work, we're always, you're kind of on an island anyway because you don't, and the, the peer counseling and stuff, some some of the way that we do things, I cringe when you see it because we don't typically talk to our peers as much as we would probably should. Mm-hmm. And you don't, because you don't want anybody to see you as being weak or not being able to do the job or make a decision or challenging yourself that makes you look weak. So, well, one, one of those things along that same line is if you have a proper debriefing after major incidents, sure. 
<clears throat> you can clear a lot of this garbage up. Absolutely. Like some of these guys, like we lost one of our guys who was involved in, in a, uh, a shooting and he was uh, standing right behind me. If he would have shot, the only person he would have shot was me. And I really appreciated not getting shot again. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, you, you, you tend to line yourself up in the wrong way or something. I know. <laughs> but what I'm trying to say is if you have a proper debriefing after these things, sure. a lot of this stuff will get cleared up and a lot of departments still don't do that right. Mm -mm. And, you know, that was one of the things I really uh, liked about Susan when we first met because that was one of her big things was, was proper debriefing. And... um and still can't get it done right in yeah. some of these places. They just don't get it. It's not rocket science or I wouldn't be doing it because I'm not that smart. And that's the part I think that frustrates me is this is really pretty common sense wise stuff. And, and granted, my personality is not for everybody, nor do I ever tell anybody. Somebody actually, one of your supervisors at Chandler told somebody in the last few months, well, you know, Susan's not the end all be all. Have y'all ever heard me say I was the end all be all? No, that's, but that's a problem. That's probably a person that can't find the right person to help them either. It's probably so. who needs to be in here and doesn't want I to come. found it. So. <laughs> and you know, that's something I've started doing at the end of supervisor trainings is I tell them at the very end that anybody who walks out of here and dogs me that hasn't really confronted me in the training, asking questions and stuff. And they walk out of here and talk about how I'm stupid or a dumbass or whatever. That's somebody who needs to be on my couch. So nobody walks out and dogs me after training. <laughs> yeah. Good sign. So I have a question for you, Susan. Sure. And, uh, you know, we've, I, we've talked about this, but I think it's good for not only your listeners, but probably anybody that's thinking, even considering um, using Under the Shield. And that's like your history all the way back to the day that you decided, I, uh, I want to start this Under the Shield. We need to do something. Mm -hmm. And a little bit of your, your history and how that all started. And, and at what point, you said, this is what we need to do. And here's what's funny. <laughs> My sorority sisters from college, when I did start this company, all were like, we could have told you this is what you were supposed to do. And I was never headed this way. Um, married my high school sweetheart. Uh, he was a Richland County deputy the first year we were married. And during that time, he was in the hiring process for DEA. And I was a criminal justice major, so I had been around cops and stuff. Nobody in my family was law enforcement that I know of. And um, so DEA drops us in New Orleans. So we come out of Columbia, South Carolina, to New Orleans in the early 80s. And it was at the time of Kiki Camarena. And for those in the audience that don't look him up, the series Narco, Narcos was about, part of that series was about Kiki. And he was a DEA agent very, very close to being transferred to San Diego. His family, actually, our understanding had already moved. And he and his pilot were kidnapped, tortured brutally. Um, it was it was a horrible situation. And DEA was fairly small at that time, but it really shook everybody at our core. And then I was already asking, what have I gotten myself into here? And then we had a neighbor, builder of our home, good friend, people we uh, hung out with that turned out to be a major cocaine trafficker. And so eventually DEA moved us from New Orleans to Montgomery. And I was a litigation paralegal. That's what I had done postgraduate. I'd gotten certified, one of the early um, programs in paralegal. And it's what I thought I'd do for my career. And then we had an agent killed in, in Birmingham, Alabama, May 28, 1992. 
and his presidential proclamation actually hangs here in the office. And um, young young wife, no kids. Uh, they were from Franklin, Tennessee. And um, the way that Christy learned about her husband's death, it wasn't a DEA issue, but she learned about his death on the news. And that pretty much set me on fire. Um, you know, I'd heard as long as we had been on, and now we've been on almost 10 years at this point, and I'd always heard DEA was a family and we take care of our own. And, you know, my attitude was if they're going to do that to her, they'll do it to me too. So I sit my husband down, tell him I'm going to quit my $45,000 a year job and get my master's in counseling to go back and provide free counseling to law enforcement officers and their families. And being me, I wasn't going to just do it in Montgomery or in Alabama or in the South or Southeast. We're going to put this baby out nationwide. You know, if we're going to do it, let's do it. I can handle that. I'm young. I'm stupid. I can do it all. <laughs> and so uh, went and got my master's. And halfway through the program, as I continue to hear my professors, who are all psychologists, telling me, you'll never make this fly. This will never happen. Cops are the same as everybody else. And if you start trying to treat them unique and different, it'll never work. And I'll never forget a Montgomery lieutenant, uh, Barry Talbert, whose picture also hangs in the office. He worked security outside of the university where I was. And he always saved me a parking place right at the front door, which happened to be a fire hydrant. <laughs> Everybody else got run off. That was Susan's illegal parking place. And I remember talking to him the first time I met him, and he goes, no cop's going to talk to you. I take those words as a challenge. And within about two weeks, I actually cut class one night and Barry and I stood out outside and talked and he actually named under the shield. Now, there were a lot of names he came up with that there was a lot of joking going on beneath the badge and behind the badge. And there was a lot of, of what some people would call inappropriate. I found it hilarious conversations, but he actually named under the shield and unfortunately later was killed in a car accident right before he married the love of his life. And uh, so getting through that program, I went, you know what? I've already learned a lot about what needs to be done from living it. The book stuff, I don't know that I'm necessarily going to use that much of it. And so I finished the program anyway, and then I decided, you know what? I don't want to, I don't want to be governed by this group. They have their place. The licensed world does. I want to do something different. And wound up with a mentor, Dr. Jim Reese, who was one of the original um, behavioral science unit people at Quantico. Um, he was up there with John Douglas. And I don't even remember how I met Jim. He passed away a few years ago. And he said, Susan, I was talking about getting a PhD. And he goes, eh, don't do it. And he said, I did it. Don't do it. He said, you need to get in the field, do this, teach, whatever. And he said, and then get your board certification as an expert in traumatic stress through the American Academy of Experts in Traumatic Stress. And that's what I did. I took his advice. It was great advice. And that's what I did. And then became a fellow with the American Academy. And we're not mandated reporters through them, but we're seen as experts based on experience. And so it, that launched everything here. And then 9-11 happens. And I get pulled up to 9-11 to New York with our team out of Alabama, our peer support SISM team, and spent five weeks up there with those guys. And 
it just started growing from there, basically. And so that's kind of the history of it. So what do you, at what point did you get to where with the under the shield to move it, to, to make it what it is right now mm-hmm. and to, to move out here to the, to the Valley? Well, I got divorced in 03 and, you know, we're still good friends and our kids, it kind of freaked them out because, you know, kids in divorce like the parents to be at odds because they can play each other against the other one. My teens didn't get to do that. And uh, so I came out here, I was doing some work with a a vitamin company and um, they called me and said, hey, there's a small organization in Arizona. And, And actually what's interesting is backing it up to about 2000 seven, maybe, um, Lieutenant, Cur- no, actually earlier than that, um, early on in this, I met Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman here at Phoenix. We were both teaching for the International Association of Law Enforcement Firearms Instructors. And to be honest, I didn't really care for this area. I, I did some ride-alongs. And of course, the ride-alongs I did made it look like there were no nice areas in Mesa or Phoenix or anything. And so then in, in uh, 2012, I get a call and this vitamin company says, hey, we want to pay for you to come out here and speak to a small association called the Desert Dog Canine Trials. And it was the end of March of 2012. And I said, they said, they don't have any money, but we'll pay your expenses. Okay, it's not going to cost me anything. I haven't been to Phoenix in a while. So I came out here and taught at that and. It was an incredible experience. I uh, met some really amazing people. And what was funny was uh, the head of that organization came up afterwards and he said, hey, um, I know we don't owe you anything, but the guys said it's the best training they've ever had. We want to pay you something. Now, to back it up, the Alabama uh, Public Safety Troopers um, had used me in a situation and had agreed to pay for me to help one of their troopers, which I did, got him back to work. And then when I submit the $10,000 bill, they suddenly go, oh, you're not licensed, so we're not going to pay you. Mm. <laughs> and the premise in the beginning had been, will you teach our stress management in the academy, which I did. I was training all the trooper academies. And then they come back and basically rip me off for $10,000. Now I'm out here with a group who doesn't owe me a dime and they want to write me a check. And they wrote me, I'm thinking a couple of hundred dollars. They wrote a check for $2,000. And I went, wow, these people pay bills they don't even have. Yeah. <laughs> and so my kids are, you know, out of college and uh, the youngest is going in the Marines at that time. And I said, all right. So I go home. I'm not thinking about moving. i got a great house on a lake, endless pool overlooking the lake, all the toys. And about two weeks after I get home, a guy that had seen my house a few years back called and he goes, I want to buy your house. Really? I didn't know it was for sale. (laughs) He goes, I don't care if it is or not. I'll pay market value, all closing costs. You walk away with your equity. And I heard me say, okay. And my son's like, what are you doing? I said, I don't know. (laughs) He goes, where are you going? And out of my mouth literally came Phoenix. Mm. I didn't know a soul in the whole state other than the few people I'd casually met. And that, so that was the end of March. I was out here teaching and literally June 14th, I landed in Avondale, Arizona, sold my house, packed up everything I'd ever known. I'd never lived anywhere but the South, South Carolina, Georgia, Alabama, New Orleans. And I land out here with my dog, my cat and my parrot. 
And my son literally looks at me and says, if you decide to move back to Alabama, I'm changing my number. And you call somebody else to truck your ass back all the way across country. After helping you move out here from Avondale, I understand that. <laughs> so I lived in Avondale for about four, almost five years. And then in that time frame, of course, met you guys. And most of my work was here in Chandler. And I had the office up in Mesa by Falcon Field. And I'm like, and then we had the I-10 shooter in there, too, and I'm sitting in traffic on mm -hmm. I-10 feeling like a fish in a barrel. <laughs> is what, what Under the Shield is today, is that what you had envisioned when you completed your <laughs> master's? or No. It's com well, I guess the part about the, the it not being mandated reporting, but I really didn't, I didn't realize the resistance I would get from police departments with this whole She's not licensed. And and I'll tell you where I think most of it came from. And y'all saw this at, at Chandler when I first started. And it's the city attorneys. They get a little freaked out. And, you know, the difference in me and a licensed counselor is I didn't sit for a test. I finished top of my class, 4.0 in graduate school. But I just didn't sit for a license exam that gives me a state license. So I'm regulated by the state. And if I don't abide by the rules and ethics and regulations, they can take my license, which means also that I can't bill for insurance or legally charge. A person can't legally charge as a counselor if they're not licensed. And I learned a valuable lesson in, in Alabama because I did try this with the sheriff's department and the sheriff agreed to let me. I, I charged some stupid amount, like $2,500 for the year or something. And then he made the biggest mistake that taught me, probably the biggest lesson that taught me I'd never be mandated. And he knew or somehow thought that one of the deputies was seeing me. And I knew they were gunning for his job. And it's funny because he just recently retired and, and reached out to me. But um, the sheriff called me to his office and I went over there and he said, I need to know about this deputy. What about this deputy? I know you're seeing him. Really? He goes, if you don't tell me what I want to know, I'm not going to renew your contract. I'll be back. I literally went home. I got the contract. I wrote a check for $2,500. I walked into his office, tore up the contract, and handed him the check back. And I said, no need to worry about that anymore. And he couldn't believe it. I don't do well. I'll be homeless under an overpass before I'm going to let people tell me to do something that violates my own common sense and ethics, as I put it. You're not going to bully me into telling you something about somebody when it's just because you don't like them, usually. Why do you think it's so important to have that confidentiality? Because with what officers are dealing with, and here's the thing, y'all are better psychologists than any PhDs I know. And let me tell you, I ticked off the Dallas Police Department psychologist with that comment in a training one time. But what was interesting to me was he never, I didn't even know he was in there, and it wouldn't have changed anything if I had known. But he never tried to have a conversation about my thoughts on this. And I said, it's kind of funny to watch a cop with a psychologist that doesn't understand law enforcement. It's like a cat with a mouse. Y'all are kind of batting them around. You give them just enough. You walk up to that line, and then you back up. And, and uh, the reality is, is that if officers can't freely come into someone and say, Susan, I'm struggling, and, you know, 
I just don't want to do this anymore, which can be a suicidal thought. You know, an accountant in March says, I don't want to do this anymore. They're leaving accounting because the tax season's killing them. But a cop saying, I don't want to do this anymore, doesn't have to be a suicidal thought, but could be. And usually it's people, good people, because again, 99.9% of law enforcement officers are good people. Yes, we have the bad apples. We don't talk about it because everybody's got bad apples. I don't care what industry you're in. But the reality is, is if we can't get them in a place that it's safe for them to talk about what's going on, we can never get to the problem. And suicide, if you look at the numbers, with a few years of exception, COVID did a really weird thing. It actually lowered the suicides in the industry. Now, we have a little different theory on some of it, too, because I, if I had the time and the inkling to do it, it would be interesting to look back to see if line of duty deaths went up where there were single car accidents, no vest on and high risk situations. Um, if those numbers went up and suicides came down. But for the most part, over the last 16 years, the numbers continue to climb every year. So it tells me we're not doing enough. And I, I think the problem is, is guys are afraid. I've actually had them come in here and spend 20, 30 minutes literally clinging to the armrest on my couch, wanting to say something, but not knowing if it's safe to say it. And when I see that, I go, stop, take a breath. Let me tell you something. You see me sitting here, no notes, no no records, no computer on my lap as I'm typing away. Um, I don't even know your name, nor do I care what your name is because I don't have to. Be Bugs Bunny. Be Joe Biden. Be your sheriff. Be your chief. I, I don't care. And you can just literally see the stress come down and they go, okay, I'm going to trust you. Trust me. been doing this 30 years. Susan, I had my gun in my mouth last night. Well, join the club. I, I could put 20 men in this room or women that will tell you they've done the same thing. He goes, you don't have to call anybody? No, not going to. What am I going to call them and tell them? And who am I going to call? I don't know who you work for. <laughs> and so if they can't open up to somebody and they always have to walk up to that line for fear of losing their badge or their gun and their job, what are we accomplishing? Where do you think the most resistance comes from for that licensing? And when, why do you think that is? Again, I think city attorneys are a huge part of it because what they're looking for is they want someone who has that license that keeps them in check, that they have to tell somebody if an officer is suicidal. I get liability. Everybody's got it. But again, what good are we doing people if they can't get the help they need and really and truly, by the time an officer walks into a psychologist or a licensed counselor and says, I'm suicidal, they don't care about their career anymore. And I guess that's away. the most important part because it, it, that they don't care about that anymore. So that's probably the most critical person that you dealt with because they've come to terms with that. Yes. So a lot of people come, I think I'm going to kill myself or I think I need to or I want to. That's not They're not there yet because they still are going to work and don't want to lose their career. And they won't help. Right. So with police officers, though, and, and there's just the experience that you have with that specific group, mm -hmm. uh, how often do you think that you you see that when you're talking with people? Oh, we could, I, I can average one a week. I've had as many as three in here in one week. And that doesn't count the calls coming through on our crisis line. 
One night I had, and I learned something from all of y'all. One night I had a guy call me about two in the morning. No idea where he was calling from because the number they call is what pops up on our phone. We don't have their number. And it took me a good hour, if not longer, to convince him it was safe to really talk to me because he had called the National Suicide Hotline at some point in his career. And I didn't know this, learned this from him. But they have the information of who's calling, and they sent his own police department to his house to do a welfare check. Oh. Yeah. And I, I, my guess is, is most of the National Suicide Hotline, again, good people, good intentions, all that stuff. But you screw over a cop once, and their word's going to spread, and they're never going to call you again. How often do you think that somebody that's in that point is actually calling the suicide hotline versus just not doing anything at all. And then they carry out what they're, you know, I, I don't know. I'd never had anybody tell me they called it. That's why I didn't know how it worked. So with that, I mean, you are able to, because they have that trust with you or mm -hmm. that, the, you know, cause that's the one thing that you always teach. And that the first thing that you say, I'm not licensed, I'm not a reporter. And I know for a fact, and I'm, I'm probably leading this a little bit because I know <laughs> How many times that you've had either people stay here or that you've gotten up in the middle of the night and driven for hours to go sure. to go get somebody and, and work them through whatever they're going through. And you can't put that, I don't think, on the suicide hotline nope. or you can't put that on any of the, the mandatory reporters mm -hmm. other than that we know that somebody said something. And it'd only be one. That's right. Because then everybody else knows that they said something and that'll be the last time they say that to, to that person to actually try to get help. And that's why I say we've been here 30 years. If, if I'd ever violate, and, and when I say 30, we, 30 years, yeah, we now have stress coaches. But for when I moved out here, I was it out here. We had a team in Alabama, but out here it was just me until probably the last few years when I started training more stress coaches because the program began to grow. But again, this is not about mental illness and law enforcement. Face it, most cops are batshit crazy. They are. But that's a good thing. It's not mental illness. It's people already outside of the box. And the licensed world only understands in the box. Unless they've done specific training. You know, backing up to when I started, I did a full SWAT school with Montgomery PD. I was geared up, running, gunning, climbing, shooting. This was 30 years ago. Don't look at me like, yeah, sure she did. I was a lot younger back then, guys. <laughs> And in much better shape. I did firearms instruction. I did hostage negotiation training. I did narcotics training. I did everything I could to get exposed to law enforcement because I knew the life of a one-year road deputy and a DEA agent, but I needed to know more. And so I said the best way to do it was to get exposed. I've probably done more ride-alongs in 30 years than some officers in patrol do in a career. Well, and I think that's the important part of what Under the Shield is all about because of who you are and what you've done. I don't know that, that I've had in my 30 years, I can't think of how many psychiatrists or psychologists that I've had come go on a ride along or actually understand my job. Uh, none. Yeah. And that's, <laughs> none. Right. And that's a problem. And that's why when you go in there, and I've seen this happen, mm -hmm. is a, we have police officers that will go in or detectives that will go in and unload on a psychologist or a psychiatrist and they they end up having to go to therapy, the psychiatrist or the <laughs> psychologist because they're dealing with and they don't know yep. how to deal with or how to tell somebody how to deal with something after 
talking about what they've been through because number one, they've never been through it, but they've never taken the time to, to go spend time with police officers or go through their training or understand the mindset that it takes to even do this job or understanding that we all are batshit crazy.